Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Good morning. School is back in session. Amen. Uh, I, I, depending on who you ask, school back in session is a good thing or a bad thing. We know there's new teachers, there's old friends, the making of new friends, there's sports, there's music, there's college football. Yeah. Ohio State won, Michigan won. Some of you are happy I said that and some of you aren't. There are also negatives, though, when it comes to school, right? There's, there's, um... Bad teachers, there's missed homework assignments, there's failed tests, there's tussles on the playground, there's detentions. School really, at the end of the day, brings good and bad emotions all around. I know my um, four boys, I have uh, two in uh, elementary school, two in middle school. They experience that range of emotions every year and sometimes every day. If I haven't met you, my name is Kurt Bissell. Um, I'm the online campus pastor, although I was just thinking down here, I am the holiday preaching pastor. Uh, I was, uh, the last time you saw me was July 4th weekend, so now I have Labor Day. I am not preaching on Labor Day if you are offended. Uh, too bad. So, we, um, there we go. Is that? Okay. Um, so it's, it's good to see all of you. Pastor Chip um, is his youngest son, Matt, who I'm sure many of you know, got married this uh, yesterday. Pastor Terry McHugh did the, the, the wedding. If you want to see what Pastor Terry looks like uh, in her priestly garb, check out her on Facebook. Um, I've never seen her look quite so pastoral, but looked like they're having a, a great time. Blessings to them uh, as they are celebrating their son and the expansion of their family. Um, so coming back to the school thing just briefly, I um, want to ask you guys a question. So one of the things about school these days is discipline is different. So how many of you remember the, a paddle in school? A few of you do. And the first service, everybody raised their hand. So just <laughs> process that for what it is. But they don't, allow, they, don't allow, um, they don't allow paddles in school anymore. They don't allow rulers and the smacking of hands. They discourage yelling even. But one of the things that we haven't gotten rid of, and I know my boys would love to get rid of, is this idea of group punishment. It's a, it's a hot topic today, right? If, should we punish kids, the whole group, if one or a small group of kids is ruling in class? Or if one of the players on the court throws a bad pass, should they all run? And everybody has strong opinions on this. So I want to, um, that's me, um, I want to ask a question here. How do you feel about group punishments? How many of you are in favor of group punishments? Raise your hand. 
There's a few of you out there, okay? How many of you uh, say nay to group punishments? All right, a few more of you. So the second of you is correct. Um, Of course, there's a lot of nuance when it comes to group punishment, isn't there? Uh, And the, the reality is this, is we see it in everyday life all the time. We just mentioned college football. There are teams that will get, um, will get left out of bowl games this year and next year and the year after for the sins of previous coaches and previous players and previous administrations. And oftentimes we think that's not fair, but that is sometimes what we see in our society. Now here's the tricky thing, is group punishment is also part of Scripture. We see this idea of group punishment in Scripture, which so we're going to talk about that a little bit. We've spent the last several months now, talk, or several, yeah, several months, the last eight weeks, talking about the seven daily sins, which is a play off the seven deadly sins, which we do not see in Scripture, but are all throughout Scripture, just not there as a list. Ask Pastor Chip how he spent eight weeks on seven sins. He can tell you that later. But we're going to spend one more week on it, so nine weeks on seven sins, but And the the reality is this, those seven sins are really all individual sins. They're what has an individual, what have you as a follower of Christ or just a person in the world, what have you done to stray from God's ways to rebel against God's commands? It's the individual action. It's the individual choice. And then we talked about the actions of how do we get out of that sin? How do we move away from that sin to a place of holiness and righteousness and the work of God and to grow in God's love? And that's how we spent that time. It's really about the me stuff, right? It's about the individual stuff. And we live in a highly individual society, and there are many positives about that. But once in a while, we get lost and caught up in, real, in thinking that sin is just about the me stuff. It's just about how I am rebelling against God, how I have been separated from God, how I am going to confess and repent and pursue God beyond my sin. In the, in the Wesleyan tradition, we call that personal piety. And and personal piety, then, is how we are personally growing into the likeness of Christ. Now, Romans 3.23 then tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, sinner! Why'd y'all yell at me? No. So, so the, the response to that is that, that personal piety, that pursuit of God. Now, Richard Foster, a Christian author, theologian out of the Quaker tradition, wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. And in it, he talks about um, 13 different disciplines that are acts of personal piety and, and also social holiness, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it's this idea that we are training ourselves, that we are disciplining ourselves to become more like Christ. He breaks it into three categories. The inward disciplines, which I spelled wrong. Um, meditation, prayer, fasting, study. The outward disciplines of simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And then there's the last uh, four which are the corporate disciplines. I spelled it right there. Confession, 
worship, guidance, and celebration. See, sin's origin story isn't just about individual sin. We go back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are created and then rebel against God's ways. They sin against God. It's not just the individual sin of Adam or the individual sin of Eve. It's the sin of a couple. It's the sin of a community. There aren't a lot of people at that point, if you know the story, right? So it's the sin of the entire, uh, the entire human race at that point. And that original sin has been passed down to each of us in our everyday lives, to our community from generation to generation, and it lives with us today. That's why Romans 3.23 is true, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, as we talk about personal piety in the Wesleyan tradition, the, the complement to that is what we call social holiness. Social holiness is the idea that faith is not just a private matter, but that faith involves personal responsibility and service to others. And so while we spent eight weeks talking about our sin, I want to wrap up this series this last week talking about corporate sin. What is corporate sin? Corporate sin is about the sin of a group of people, about a community of people. It's, it's about the community straying from God's ways, straying from the word of God. But here's the thing about corporate sin is if you are in that group, you are considered guilty whether you specifically committed the sin or not. It's back to that group punishment thing that nobody likes and yet it's a reality of our, our, our lives and it's a reality of scripture. That our sin, not as only as individuals, but as a group, impacts so much more than just ourselves. Sin is not personal. Sin is communal. Sin impacts everything. In, in Romans 8, it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility... Not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8 is is describing the full extent of sin that it impacts even the creation itself. Now, earlier, um, you heard the passage read by Leilani. Give Leilani a hand. I don't know if she's in here or not, but I I picked that scripture and I I cringed a little bit inside because there were a lot of of, uh, Hebrew names in there, right? And she did a fantastic job. Um, I love this story and I couldn't figure out how to, to, to just skip over all those names. So my apologies, but... Kudos to Leilani for that. So in 2 uh, Kings 22, what we see here, a little of the backstory, is Josiah is the king. Josiah became the king of Israel at the age of eight years old, and he reigned for 31 years until the age of 39. So his, his, um, his kingdom, his, his rulership, um, was described as this. He did what was right, what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord and did not turn away from doing what was right. 
Josiah was a good king. And this is pretty remarkable. It actually mentions his mom in this passage right after that. And so we know two things. Number one is his mom was making a lot of those calls when he was eight. Because I have four boys that were all eight at one point, and one's about to be eight, and they ain't making any decisions, are they? <laughs> Although the baby would, my seven-year-old is, uh, is the youngest, and he'd be happy to make some decisions. But we know this about, uh, about his mom is, in, is making a lot of decisions, but she also raised him right. Because it says that Josiah, he did the right things. And how many, from just looking at society, when, when young people get too much power or money, that it corrupts them and turns them evil in a lot of ways, right? And, and so we see here that Josiah has a right spirit within him. And let's just, it's not Mother's Day, but let's give his mom some credit there. Amen? So, Josiah is, is reigning in, in his 26th year of life. Um, the high priest, um, Hilkiah, comes to him um, with, his, with his, um, his secretary, Shaphan. And they say, hey, um, we were cleaning out the temple, and we found something. We found the book of the law. Now, pause and think about that for a second. They found the book of the law, which means they were worshiping in the temple and didn't have the book of the law. It's like going into a church and there's no Bible. There aren't Bibles in your pews here, but that's okay. <laughs> we're preaching from the scriptures, right? It's, it's, there's a separation. So here's the thing. Josiah didn't lose the book of the law. It has been lost, most likely well before his time. I used to pastor a church, um, a little country church in Brimfield, and it, was, it had an attic. Now, there's not a church in this attic, but if you've ever been in a church attic, you can understand they put the book of the law up there just to store it for a brief moment, and 85 years later, that's when they find it again, okay? You understand. Go in a church, go in a, uh, in a country church attic, and you will see. But... The thing is, is that Josiah encounters this realization, this awareness that the, the people of Israel, that his people have not been following the law. When the book of the law is read to Josiah, he tears his clothes. In verse 11, it says, when the king Josiah heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. He wept, he, he mourned, he, he confessed, God, we've fallen short. And now, here's the thing, it wasn't Josiah's fault necessarily, but he is taking on that guilt as, as a representative for his people. And you'll see in a few moments, it's that action that saves his people. This is the type of leader that we are being called to be in our own spheres of influence. This is the type of leader that we need in today's society, but it is very hard to find them. There's, I think the reason we can't find them is when leaders begin to admit wrong, especially corporate guilt, they lose their power. And no leader wants to lose his power when the power is everything to him. 
And so we need leaders, though, that will humble themselves when there's an awareness of sin, not in just in their own lives, but in the life of their community. Now, the purpose of this sermon isn't to now list a bunch of corporate sins to make you feel guilty. I will probably mention a few along the way. But it's to ask the question, are you gaining an awareness of corporate sin in your own life, within our own community, within our own state and country and world? Because here's the thing. The church has yielded social issues, social justice, and social holiness to the realm of politics. If I stand here and talk to you about social justice issues, you, you may think I am simply talking about political issues. And nothing could be further from the truth. The church has yielded that power, that call, that responsibility. And when sin, social sin, corporate sin, is allowed to be placed in the boxes of political agendas, we lose our faithfulness as a, follower, as a body of Christ. So how do we get that back? How do we begin to embrace that social holiness, that call to justice, to humility, to walking with God. If we begin to confess our sins, even when if it's discomforting to maybe our political beliefs or our personal biases, then we begin to reclaim that voice. John Wesley said, there is no religion but social religion, no holiness but social holiness. John Wesley is not a contemporary woke theologian. He's the founder of the Methodist movement. And yet he's saying here is we come out of a tradition that says there is personal piety, there is personal holiness, but there is also social holiness. We follow God as individuals. We follow God as a community engaging the world. We're going to take communion at the end of the service here. And one of the things um, that we did in the first service is in our hymnals, and they're the books with a bunch of songs in them. If you read music, there's also music in them. Um, and, and at the beginning of the book of the hymnal, not the book of the law, the hymnal, is a bunch of liturgies. One of those liturgies, which is just kind of a written out order of service for communion. And in it, it begins with an invitation, and then it goes into a confession and a pardon. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to read through that very first part. But the confession and pardon you're gonna read, um, it uses the word we for a lot of it. What I want you to not do is, is, as we read through it, is to say, well, I haven't done that one, or I'm not guilty of that one, so I'm gonna skip over them. Right, but instead when we read through it, say, how am I part of a community that is confessing these things? So, so let's do that. Christ our Lord invites us to his table, all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sins before God and one another. And now together, merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. 
we have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Remember those words as we go into communion today. That we are part of a community that is guilty of sin. But that is not the end of the story. Josiah hears these words and says, oh, we messed up. And then the next thing that they do is they go, oh, I'm, I'm, you want to finish it? Let's finish it. All right. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. It was much easier when I had the book and I was just reading through it. I apologize. So, turn to your neighbor now. You yelled sinner at them a minute ago. Now, even louder, say, you are forgiven. Amen. You guys did good with that. All right. So, as we become aware of our sin, as we then confess our sin, we are seeking forgiveness and we are seeking guidance. So, Josiah sends his priest and their group of folks. See, I didn't say all the names. You heard them once already. But he sends his, his group of leaders to the prophetess, Huldah. Huldah is one of seven female prophets in the Old Testament. Why they go to her is a whole other sermon. But I will tell you this, is they could have gone to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an active prophet at the time. He's got a really long book that's really intense and kind of sad. They don't go to him, they go to Huldah. So just take note of that. In fact, the early church, early church tradition used Huldah as one of the examples that God's Holy Spirit works through women. Let's just talk about awareness of sin for a second. If that doesn't convict some of us, maybe it should. But they go to Huldah, and Huldah's role as the prophet is to speak the, the, the words of the Lord to interpret the book of the law for them. They read it, they go, we have messed up. Now what? What's gonna happen? And Huldah confirms like, yeah, you messed up and I'm getting ready. God is getting ready to send judgment upon your people. And then she says, but there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is grace because, because they confess And so as you wrestle with corporate sin and generational guilt, we seek out wise counsel because that wise counsel so often can proclaim grace and forgiveness to you and begin to show you another way. So how are we wrestling with sin? I I don't know that we do a great job of this in the church, but there's a couple of reasons that we, and ways that we do this as a, as, a, as a communal body. One is we are part of a denomination. Now, if I did a survey and I listed a bunch of denominations, I don't know how many of you would guess which one we were part of and get it right. That's okay. But we are part of a denomination, one of the largest in the country still, but we just went through a significant split. 
So we don't have it all right, but I would say this, is we associate with a larger body because they help us see our own sin. They help give us perspective, and we also help them get perspective as well. We are also part of the Mosaic Global Leadership Network, a network of diverse churches all throughout the country of many different denominations, many different races and creeds, tongues, and we're part of that so that we can also see where we need to be called to action in our community. So our church leadership has made intentional decisions to say part of group sin is seeking wise counsel to surround ourselves with different perspectives. And that's important, whether that's individually finding a mentor, a counselor, a teacher, a coach, or corporately within the the body of what we are pursuing. It's hard to see that a lot of places, but one of the places that I have seen kind of this idea of guidance um, as we encounter um, corporate sin is in the investing world, there's a concept called ESG. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governmental, governance. And what it does is investors are building, they build portfolios and they buy companies, and they have to figure out ways to invest in these companies. And most, most uh, inv- investors will look at balance sheets, they look at uh, P&L statements and things like that. But the ESG movement is saying we want to look a little bit deeper and understand how are these companies, uh, how is their business practices impacting the environment? Because, of course, there is, envi- there is environmental sin. M- most of us probably drove a car here today. Did anyone uh, take a buggy? No. Right? So we, we all drove in some way, shape, or form, and so we are guilty potentially of environmental sin. So it's looking at how does a company, how is their environmental impact? Um, how is their social impact? How are they engaging social issues? How do they treat the LGBTQ community? How is the diversity in their workplace and things like that? And then governance are, um, is how are they treating employees? How are they treating customers? How are they treating their, their community, their neighborhood? Are they being a good, a good citizen? And so investors can use these as a way to say, are these companies doing greater good and not just making profit? Can they make profit and do good? Now here's the question is, what should our ESG filter look like as Christians as we look at our own sin, but as our corporate sin as well? What, is, what awareness is, is it bringing to us and how is it helping us to move forward? When we confess though, Forgiveness and grace are available. Verse 19 and 20 in this chapter says, uh, this is Huldah speaking the words of the Lord. You were sorry and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people. That this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I am going to bring upon this city. 
when we are willing to acknowledge our sinfulness, confess it, forgiveness and grace are available. And forgiveness and grace give us space to right our wrongs, to do what is righteous, to take care of the needy, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to bring healing to this world. There are plenty of ways that we should become aware of our sin. In this community, some of the things that we have worked towards correcting, things like systemic racism, economic disparities, things like that, there are so many more, right? We, we drove cars today that contributes to uh, climate change. We um, all live on land that wasn't originally ours. We don't have to feel guilty about these things, but I think we need to be humble and say, Lord, we have been a part of them. How can we bring healing around them? How can those empower us? Because Romans 3.23 reminds us we're all sinners. But Romans 6.22 says, But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Now you are free. Now do these things that lead to holiness, personal piety, social holiness, and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we embrace our sin, not to feel guilty, but to experience freedom. We don't need to take the corporate sins of our country out of our schools, out of our social conscience, but we embrace them so we can move forward, so that we can be a righteous people of God. That is the role of the church, I believe. And while that sounds like a political statement, it's not. It's reflective of the heart of God. Huldah offers King Josiah reprieve so that he can live a life of righteousness and lead his people to a life of righteousness. And we know that he did that. And that his Community did not suffer destruction because of that awareness, that confession, and that receiving of forgiveness and grace. The, it's time for us as a community to pursue social justice and social holiness as a group. The end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, there's a, a word to all of the seven churches. So we see a, a, a group accountability and a group encouragement in those seven. The church of Laodicea, it says this. It says, so I advise you to buy gold from me. This is God speaking. Gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness. An ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. It's an encouragement of saying, invest in that which is good. I have given you more time. Do good with it. And remember this. Jesus gives us the power, the key to success of social holiness in Matthew 18. It says, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, 
My Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered together, my followers, I am there among them. There is power in togetherness. It's not just the me stuff. It's the we stuff. It's not just personal piety. It's social holiness. When we are together, there is power to be transformed, to transform the world, to bring healing and hope to the nations. We're starting a series next week called Dangerous Prayers. And dangerous prayers as individuals are one thing. But dangerous prayers as a group of people are an entirely other thing. Some of you that use the Bible app, um, which uh, we're actually doing a series by Craig Rochelle, who's the uh, pastor at Life Church. Um, They've got, I don't know how many campuses now, but they are the creators of uh, the Bible app. And there is a... um, a Bible reading plan at seven days called Dangerous Prayers. It's based on, it's part of the series that we're gonna start next week. So um, some of you are, are connected, friends with me. I don't know what the word is, but on the Bible app, I just sent a bunch of invitations out. If you didn't get one, sign up for the Bible app, search for me, search for your friends. Um, look for just a d- Dangerous Prayers within that. Um, but it's just an, a, a, an opportunity for us to... Um, to go deeper, right? To go together so that we can experience the fullness of God, the power of God. We're gonna go into a time of communion now.